Today's turkey shows you what happens when the ancient world, the developing world, and the first world all come together. And with a quickly growing economy and population, the pace of modern change in Turkey may come as a shock to travelers who haven't visited lately. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Now that political concerns are on the front burner as Turkey confronts Kurdish separatists across the Iraq border, this is a good time to get a first-hand understanding of what Turkish nationalism means to the Turkish people and how that nationalism shapes their democracy. Tour guide Melika Saval is a proud Turkish citizen who leads hundreds of Americans around her country each year. She joins us today to shed light on some of Turkey's political tensions and to answer your questions about visiting everything from the bustling streets of Istanbul to dropping in on nomads in their goat hair tents. We'll also start today's show with stories of your recent travels. Come along as we explore the world in the hour ahead with a spotlight on Turkey. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Travel in Turkey these days comes with a poignant look at a country that somehow is ancient and modern, Muslim and secular, Eastern and Western all at the same time. And with the concerns about how Turkey deals with Kurdish separatists inside and across its borders, it's a good time to get a local's take on the situation. Meli Saval joins us in a little while to explain how nationalism and democracy shape Turkey's identity in a rough-and-tumble corner of the world. Let's start today's show with a few of your own travel stories and how your recent adventures have impacted your own worldview. We're at 877-333-RICK and radio at ricksteves.com. That's our email address. Bill's on the line from Homewood, Alabama. Hi, Bill. Hey, how are you? Great. Thanks for your call. Got a story to share? Well, my wife and I went to Europe. We quit our jobs and uh, went to Europe for about six months and started in Prague and went all the way to Turkey through Greece and then uh, back up through Western Europe and spent the, uh, some of the winter in uh, Portugal and then flew home from Madrid. Sounds like quite an odyssey. Six months? <laughs> six months. It was really nice. It was a bit of a, a scary thing to do at first, you know, but uh, I'm glad we did it now that we're back. It's been a few years. We've got two kids now, but we did it right before we had the children, and it was a nice thing to do. We had an amazing time, met tons of uh, wonderful European people. Uh, we met some people in Turkey in a hostel in uh, Selçuk near Ephesus, oh, yeah. and then we uh, visited their home in um, in. Um, Everdon in Switzerland in the Lake District, which was really great. And that was several months later after we'd met them. Bill, sure. how, how old were you and your wife when you quit your jobs and took off? Uh, I think... Uh, Roughly. I was 30, and I think she, she turned 30 right after we left. Wow, that's a courageous but I think smart thing to do. You knew you were going to have kids down the road, and you thought this is your chance to go out there. And were you glad you did it in retrospect? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was great. We just had two packs and took off, and we could go wherever we wanted to and stay as long as we wanted to here or there and, you know, no schedule. I had a loose agenda plan, and we stuck to it more or less. But if we found some place we loved, we stayed an extra few days and sometimes an extra week or two. Isn't that great? What a luxury. I don't have that luxury when I'm traveling <laughs> these days. To get... Wow. <laughs> Did, is six months a long time? Did you get burned out, uh, you know, uh, or how do you handle that, the reality of being away for so long? Well, I'll tell you, we, we, we stayed for two weeks in London with some friends of ours that we had met previously on our honeymoon in Mexico. And um, we stayed there a little bit to recharge our batteries. And then it was the cold, the winter time was kind of, we got there on Thanksgiving, actually. And the winter was really rough. And uh, we were really glad to get to Barcelona right before Christmas, and it was nice and warm. And uh, that was really, really nice to have warm weather again. I think from the time we got to Italy, oh, well, northern Italy, it was getting cold in Florence. And from Florence back to Barcelona, that was, I guess, a month and a half of travel or something like that. So, Bill, just, spent cold. Bill just you and your wife, what did it do to your relationship? <laughs> there was one time... Uh, I think she threw down her guidebook and ran all, and went back to the hotel the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> but then I had to go chase her, and we were in Rome, I think, and she was she was not happy. 
that brings to mind, I got to tell you, I was in Turkey once. You were in Turkey there, and there's a little stress when you're in Turkey sometimes with your travel partner. And uh, this, Before I was married, I got in a big fight with my girlfriend. We're stuck in this one hotel together, and then the, she's, uh, she, she's taken off. So we, she takes off. I take off. There's only one bus out of town that day, so we're both on the same bus. <laughs> got back together again. <laughs> You know, one thing I, I've learned in travels is don't go through your trip like you're in a three-legged race. A lot of people, because they're, they're partners or spouses, they, they act like they're tied together. I think it's very healthy to be able to say, hey, I don't want to see another Monet, okay? I've seen the art. I'm going down to the harbor, and I'm going to look at boats. And you sure. get, get away and do your own thing and, and even skip a meal together and then come back together again. I think that's very good advice, especially to sustain a, a happy traveling partnership when you're on the road for six months. I agree. I agree. We, we 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 would do our own thing occasionally, and that was really good to have some time where she could do what she wanted to, go to a museum, and I'd go to some ruins or, or whatever. Hey, Bill, thanks a lot. Happy travels. Well, thanks. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye now. And we got Mike on the line in Laguna Niguel in California. Hi, Mike. Hi, Rick. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Just to segue off that last caller, we have a 19-year-old son who has been to Europe with us now 15 times, and now he's off to college and can't wait to have a year abroad, which he's going to do in Lausanne, Switzerland, through Pepperdine University. But it's just a great way to educate your kids and let them know that there's another world out there and give them a broader perspective, I think, when they're going through school. So I, I certainly endorse that. Mike, that's so beautiful. How old is your son? He's 19. And he's been with you 15 times. Mm-hmm. My wow. wife and I, I'd never been to Europe until uh, my early 30s when my wife and I got together and and we started traveling. She was an Air Force brat, so she had a lot of travel, and I didn't. We went over to Europe for the first time, bought a car, and spent six weeks without an itinerary and just had the time of our life. So that was the beginning of it. That was 1981. You know, one of the big joys for me in my parenting, after taking our kid to Europe every year of his life, he finally went on his own without mom and dad when he was 18. And I was just glued to his blog. And every day, checking in, see what Andy's doing. He's not going to any of the museums, like his dad said. He was making friends and, and getting to know the world. And it, it really they take it with them to college then, don't they, Mike? They sure do. And what we found, we've had uh, kids from the island of Capri, from the Dordogne, from Paris, come over and stay with us that our son had met during our travels to Europe. All right. So we're just becoming an international family out there, which uh, in this world of globalization is not a bad thing. One of the wonderful areas that we've gone back to repeatedly, in fact, we've become friends with a wonderful family there, is in the Dordogne, which we really, we're really drawn to. Just outside of Les Isées, there's a, a 12th century ruin that's now open to the public. It's called the Chateau de Comarque. Hmm. And the, the charm of it is that the Count and Countess of Comarque, which is a, a thousand-year-old family from that family, are still there. They still live in a chateau that they open to the public from time to time. But if you're lucky, when you're down to the going through this ruin, the Count will be out there touring people around and uh, just being a great host and guide. And it's a real thrill for us to go down there and spend a day uh, kind of walking through the ruins and seeing what life was like uh, a thousand years ago. You know, there's something charming and, and pretty exciting from a history point of view and a cultural point of view to find a chateau with, which is still inhabited by the noble family that's been there for centuries. And you can actually do that in a number of cases. And generally, they open to the public, not because they just love tourists, but because it's sort of an example of the impoverishment, I think, of the nobility in the 21st century. These people are land-rich but cash-poor. And uh, in many cases around Europe, you've got uh, wonderful manor houses and castles that are actually open to the public a few times a month, once a week, a couple times a day, whatever, uh, welcoming tourists to check it out. And in many cases, the noble family actually escorts you through their medieval palace. Sometimes they even serve you breakfast in the morning, fresh-squeezed orange juice and fresh berries and things like that. And we were surprised that the that it was really fairly affordable. I mean, it wasn't dirt cheap, but it certainly wasn't as expensive as we thought it would be. You know, I was just in that area this last summer working on our France book with my co-author, the Dordogne, and talk about a magnificent place to enjoy the prehistoric sites and the chateau, like you're talking about, and the wonderful cuisine and the French love of, of good living. Doesn't get much better than that. It really doesn't. Mike, thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. Bye now. Bye. Lee in Middleton, Wisconsin. Hello, Lee. Hi, Rick. Real honor to talk with you. Thanks. Nice to have you calling. What's up? Well, um, one of the things that we really enjoyed on our vacation, we went to uh, Great Britain. We rented a car, and we drove through North Wales, and we visited Conwy, which is a beautiful old ruined castle. And the guide that we had there really made the place come to life. I mean, I expected Edward I to come walking across the bridge. 
he, he made it interesting, he made it alive. And then he told us as we were leaving that uh, the next day he was going to go in because he was going to have cancer surgery. And we always wondered what happened to him. Well, then we watched your show on North Wales, and there's my travel guru, Rick Steves, talking to Neville. And it was tremendous to see that he was alive and well and that he's still giving history life. Neville, his fountain of youth is that castle in Conway, and he's like a little Energizer bunny. He was tremendous. I, I mean, he's a, he's a tiny little guy who must have been in the British Foreign Legion, and he still wears his beret, Yep. and he wanders through that castle, and it's like he was there at the banquet, and it's like it's still furnished. And to walk with him with the, with the public television cameras rolling was really a delight, and it reminded me how great it is as travelers for us to connect with, with people who just love sharing the history and the art, and people like Neville there at Conway Castle in northern Wales really make a difference, don't they? Oh, it does. I mean, I, I was a history major in college, and history comes to life to me in my mind, but he, honestly, I, I really expected to see uh, Longshanks there. It, it was just a tremendous job. And what's very poignant is when you go to these castles in England, you can sort of draw modern parallels. I mean, the English were trying to quell a feisty Welsh insurgency, and they made these little green zones as they tried to take over and calm the, the locals. They would service them by boat, and they would have garrison towns. So in the case of the greatest castles of the age, they were built on the coast of Wales. They could serve them from England. They weren't Welsh castles. They were English castles of Edward I, right? Right, Edward I. You have these garrison towns, which would be in, uh, populated by English settlers, and you got this formidable castle, and then you can just envision those ornery, angry Welsh insurgency out there that just wouldn't let the British uh, get comfortable, the English get comfortable. And uh, it's just so much fun to have a, a feisty local guy telling the stories. Oh, it's great. Another thing about that is that traveling uh, with your guidebook and traveling my wife and I by ourselves, this is something that you get to experience. If you're in a tour, you're kind of in this giant bubble where you're, you've got the tour guide and the people that you're with all the time, and you really don't it's like looking through a glass at something. You know, the, the built-in problem there is, uh, unfortunately, most tour companies have a profit sort of equation where they don't pay their tour guides a real wage. They get a token wage or no wage at all. And then the poor tour guide for the big bus company has to make his living off of selling you things over the course of your vacation. And or it just, taking you to various uh, souvenir shops. Taking you shopping. So you wouldn't have a chance to hang out with Neville. You're going to be sitting there in some sort of a, a shop, and it's be driven by the fact that there's a 15 or 20% commission for your tour guide. So yeah. uh, good for you for getting out and enjoying it on your own. And Neville is uh, alive and well, I can promise you that. That's great. Thanks for taking my call. You bet. Happy travels, Lee. Thank you. Next, we're spicing up our travels with a fresh look at Turkey. Melly Saval leads hundreds of Americans through her country each year, and she joins us in a moment to take your calls and update us on what's new in her country. We're at 877-333-7425. That's 877-333-RICK. And you can post your comments anytime on our online message boards at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're heading for Turkey. Turkey. Ah, you know, Turkey is the greatest way to spice up your European adventure. Fly home from 
Istanbul, fly home from Ankara. It's so easy to do an open jaw trip, flying into your destination in the west of Europe, and then let let the challenges grow as you work into more and more complicated and I think rewarding cultures, and finish things off with a flurry in Turkey. I have with me Malika Seval, and she's a friend of mine who I've uh, led tours with, and she's helped us out on our public television TV show. Today, Meli uh, runs a tour company of her own with her daughter, and Meli joins us in our studios to get us up to date on contemporary Turkey. Meli, thanks for being here. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Uh, what's just the general uh, feeling now for the economy in Turkey, and, and how are things going? I think economy is getting much better. The last four years, we've uh, lowered the inflation rate down to single digits, so that's the good news. Has inflation been a problem earlier than It that? has been a problem. It even went up to three digits. Meaning what? Meaning like 120% inflation. Things more than doubling every year. Consider, yes. Wow. So this is great. How is the tourism business in Turkey? The infrastructure is excellent. In hope of better tourism, we keep making it better. There are more airports now than we did even two years ago. The roads are wonderful, but tourism is not all that good still. Because of the tension in the Middle East mostly? Probably since 9-11, tourism in general was low in Europe, definitely lower anywhere close to Middle East. Now, Istanbul is the primary target for most uh, American visitors to Turkey. And Istanbul is just like sprawling megapolis. How many million people live in? 15 million. 15 million. 15 million. And a tourist who's going to Istanbul is pretty much going to focus just on the old center, isn't he? If they are good travelers, they don't need to focus just in the old part. They can easily get away. They can hop on a boat, go to the Black Sea coast of Turkey. They can go to the newer part, which means like 19th, 18th century part. Or they can even go to the forests along the Black Sea and have natural adventures. Okay, but 20 years ago, what was the population roughly of Istanbul? About Six, seven million. So it's more than doubled during this period. What is this? Certainly. Where are these eight million people living? Is it does it have any character? Or is it just a concrete mess on the on the suburbs? On the suburbs, it's concrete mess. But Istanbul is so beautiful. I think the beauty of it absorbs the concrete mess. If you ask me, you had a mayor that was fixing up the uh, Golden Horn, right? This is a beautiful yeah. uh, bay that comes in, and it was that an mayor had deep blue eyes, and he claimed that he would change Golden Horn into the color of his eyes, and he did. Is that so right? So you can take a gondola ride on the Golden Horn. Now this was the it's the bay that Istanbul is built around uh, that comes off the Bosporus. Yes, it's the part that divides European section into northern and southern sections. Okay. And that was an industrial mess, and it, now it's, uh, is it like a, a green zone, a park? It's a or? green zone. It's one of the best environmental activities we've had in Istanbul. Wow. Now, when I was going to Turkey a lot, there was a huge difference between the eastern and the western half of Turkey. How is that today? Is there a gap between a rich and a poor part of Turkey, and does that go east-west? It goes east-west as well as outer suburbs and inner part of the big cities. So... Uh, east-west gap is not as definite as it used to be, but it's still there. Okay. And then the other gap would be high-rent district in the middle and Yes, sprawl. urbanization, we call that yeah. the And then the, cheap, high the poor districts would be sprawling into the suburbs. Exactly. A long time ago, it was a big challenge for Turkey to electrify every village. Now in Antonio, no, is everything There's no problem. Every single village has got electricity, and everything that comes along with electricity, they have refrigerators, they have TVs, they have uh, anything that works with electricity. In the far reaches of Turkey. In the far reaches of Turkey. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're visited by Melika Saval from Izmir and talking about um, contemporary Turkey. We'll get to your calls in a moment. You can call us at 877-333-RICK or you can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Melika, tell me what is the, the latest feeling about Turkey joining the EU, the European Union? I personally don't want to be a member of European Union, just like 80% of the Turkish people. We don't want to be a member. Why not? Uh, not, because, not why you, but why is the general 80% of the people so Because it? we have just realized, finally realized, that the European community is not a very democratic organization. Just to give you one example, as of January 2007, there are 29 countries 
as members of the EU, and there are still only 15 stars on their flag. Okay, so basically Turkish feel like they're not, if they're not going to play ball fairly with us, then we'll take our, we'll exactly, take our game Exactly, because elsewhere. only six of those 29 countries are in the decision-making okay. capacity. And, and is, the that rest, really the, is that the general Turkish feeling? That's the general Turkish feeling. So your bet is, will the government push for this? Sometimes the government overrides the will of the people. The government was using membership of EU as a big thing, and they were saying, we'll make Turkey a member of European community. But as European community started putting blockage on Turkey's membership, and as the government realized that the Turkish people don't really want it, mm-hmm. so they're not pushing it anymore. I know that some of the biggest Turkish communities anywhere are actually in Europe. There's a huge Turkish community in Berlin, for instance. And originally, they would be Turks that went to Germany to find work, and they would make uh, relatively high wages, even doing menial work, and support their families back in Turkey. Now Turkey is more affluent, but still less affluent than Germany. Is there still this gastarbeiter uh, situation with lots of Turks going to Europe? It's quite difficult for Turks to be accepted as guest workers in Europe in a way. But since the fall came down in Berlin, in Germany, there are not as many works, so it's not that interesting for the Turks to be going to Europe. Because Poles and Romanians would work cheaply also. Exactly. So now Europe has a whole new opportunity to get people to do the work that wealthy local people don't want to do, and they will draw from poor European nations rather than going to Anatolia. That's correct. And also there's an anti-Islamic feeling, I believe, in Europe, which had started in France and then spread out all around Europe. And the Turkish people being Muslim, they're less wanted than the other Christian I saw that in Ireland. I mean, Ireland has 100,000 gastarbeiters, guest workers, and they're mostly Polish, and they're Catholics, and they fit into the Irish Catholic community probably easier than Muslim Turks would. Probably. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. Uh, What percent of Turkish people are Muslim? 99%. Now, that's nominal Muslim, or are they devout Muslims? It depends on your definition. I would say they're devout Muslim. I don't know what you mean by well, nominal do they, Muslim. I mean, there's a lot of people that are Christians, but they go to church on Christmas and Easter, and that's it, but it's not no, part of their day-to-day faith, life. No, by faith, by what our religion is preaching, be a good person. Okay, 99%. 99% They subscribe to, to Muhammad's ideas about living properly on earth. Exactly. All right. But, but practicing yeah. the rituals, probably 40%. 40%. And how would you describe your faith? My faith, personal, Yeah, I'm a Muslim. Practicing, or just do you think Muhammad had good ideas? I think I'm trying to be a good person with everybody's ideas. I like to take the good teachings of whoever had given the good teachings throughout history. It must be very complicated to be a Muslim who's not a fundamentalist Muslim or an orthodox Muslim when there's so much tension in, in the Middle East because of people's faiths. In Turkey, what's the state of fundamentalism? Is that a challenge to the Turkish government? Is it a growing thing? It is definitely a challenge. Up until 1994, we never even thought that there can be fundamentalism in Turkey because of the secular teachings of Ataturk. But the fundamentalists who are backed up with interest of economic interest, they started finding grounds all over the world, and their fundamentalism doesn't have to be religious fundamentalism of Islam. It can be fundamentalism on Christianity, fundamentalism on whatever. So we started having those type of people, but since we are now aware that it can be there, fundamentalism can come to Turkey, we are taking our measures against it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Melika Saval, who comes to us from Izmir in Turkey. We have Caroline on the phone in Florida. Hi, Caroline. Thanks for calling. Thank you for having me on. I watched your program on TV, and I have your guidebooks, and they're like my traveling Bible. Oh, thank you very much. Do you have a question or a comment for Melly? Yes, I do. A few years ago, I was planning to travel to Turkey with a girlfriend of mine, 
and we just, we ended up not going because of the there were two bombings in uh, Istanbul. So we made different travel plans. But now we're rethinking it, and we would like to uh, go again uh, this uh, spring or in the fall. And I'm concerned about the fact that uh, Turkey is a Muslim country, and I was wondering how safe is it for two Jewish women traveling alone to go to your country, or would we be better off on a tour? Caroline, I would say it's very, very safe whether you were Jewish or not Jewish, whether you're a woman or as human beings, don't worry about coming to Turkey. You will find Turkish people very hospitable. That answers my question. Well, that's now Turkey is the size of California with how many people in it? 72 million. And in the cities, it's quite modern and cosmopolitan. And in the, in the countryside, you will be uh, welcomed as a, a guest from far away. And in the cruise ports, you'll be welcomed as part of the economy and somebody with lots of money. So it's like traveling in a lot of places. I think a little bit of common discretion is a good idea. But I've, I've also found we've for 15 years been bringing groups around Turkey, and, and we've always found a warm and a safe welcome. The traveling that I've been doing with my girlfriend, uh, usually we do it independently, and we take buses, and we take trains, and walk. Um, I could feel just as safe doing that in Turkey, in all parts. Yes, you will. And our bus system is very good, so don't feel worried about uh, taking public buses if you want to go from A to B. It's very easy, very efficient, and inexpensive to do that. I have one other question. Uh, if I were interested in combining uh, Turkey with a, a bit of a, a cruise to one of the Greek islands, let's say to a Santorini, and then flying back to the States from, I guess, Athens, um, is that easily done? That's very easily done. You should end your tour in Kushadesa, take a ferry which takes only 40 minutes to Samos. From Samos, you can take a boat to Santorini and fly to Athens. Okay, thank fact, you. In fact, Caroline, that's what we do with our tours because that's what I did as an independent traveler before we did the tours, is do your, have your turkey fun and then use turkey as a springboard to get to the popular Greek islands. And as Melly said, uh, Kusadashi is great because it's very close to Ephesus, which is one of my favorite sites anywhere. This is uh, famous from biblical history, and it's an ancient Greek and Roman town. And you're just a few minutes away from Samos, which is a wonderful Greek island. And from there, you can go to Patmos, another place with a lot of biblical history. Or you can go down to Bodrum, right, Melly, and take the boat over to Rhodes. Or you can end up in Marmaris and go to Rhodes yes. from Bodrum to Kos. Oh, Bodrum to Kos. Bodrum to Kos from Marmaris to Rhodes. Okay, so there's three great connections to the Greek Isles, and from there you're in the Greek ferry system. Or, of course, you could go in the other direction, uh, enjoy the Greek Isles, and go over to Turkey. Caroline, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. Yeah. Melly, and what are the, the Greek issues? I mean, historically, there were lots of Greeks in Turkey and lots of Turks in Greece, and then there was a big uh, readjustment, and everybody was sort of sent back to their ancient homeland. Tell me just a bit about that. In 1920, when Turkish people, we were not even a state then, started uh, fighting with the European allies who were trying to invade Turkey, the Greeks were Greeks in mainland, were supported by the British. But unfortunately, in that independence war, the Greeks did really bad, and they had to return to their country. And the British thought it will be best if they can take all the Orthodox, whom they called Greeks at that time, living in Anatolia to Greece, and all the Muslims who were living since the time of the Ottomans for at least four or five hundred years in Greece, they sent them to Anatolia. So we call that the big exchange of population. And that's where in 1924 the exchange was completed, splitting many families. Roughly how many people were involved in that exchange? About half a million. 500,000 people in Greece and Turkey were shoved back back to the opposite country because of their um, family's religion, basically. Exactly. And I'm uh, one of those. My family had to come from Selanik, Thessalonica, in the northern part of Greece. And the British, to... in their wisdom, thought it might be better for you to yes. go over there. Wow. Miriam in Troy, New York. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. I uh, can reassure Carolyn uh, 
about going to Turkey because I was a part of a group that visited Turkey last July, and it was just wonderful. Everyone was friendly, and I never had a moment's anxiety. I had a, a couple of uh, experiences that uh, were surprising, <laughs> but um, it, it was a wonderful uh, trip. And uh, Tell me one of the surprises. Uh, uh, on the last day before we were to return home, um, we had previously been to Greece, and we ended up in Istanbul. Uh, I visited the Grand Bazaar and uh, walked into one of the many, many stalls and looked at a bag hanging from the ceiling and touched it. And sort of over my shoulder, I asked the uh, shopkeeper, well, how much is this? And, uh, of course, everyone speaks pretty good English in, in terms of uh, shopping. And the man behind me said, oh, that's expensive. Here, this one's better for you. It's not handmade. <laughs> and I turned around and looked at him, and he looked right at me and said, oh, you look very sweet, but broke. <laughs> <laughs> That's an uncharacteristic, ungreedy merchant, huh? It was, you know, how did he know? That was the truth. (laughs) That was the truth. And, well, there's a lot of cleverness going on in the market there, and it sounds like he was actually concerned about your budget (laughs) and and, and getting some of it. I really can't imagine, uh, you know, uh, his approach. But, uh, uh, of course, as tourists, uh, our uh, experiences with the Turks, uh, the Turkish people were mainly with the shopkeepers, and yeah. um, they're really very friendly. Well, they're experts at being friendly. I think it's part oh, of their livelihood, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's yes. fun, and that's a, sort of a sport to go into that grand bazaar. And uh, I'm glad to hear you, uh, you know, confirmed with Caroline, who called earlier, that as a woman traveling around Turkey, you'll you'll feel comfortable. There were four women from the group who also visited the Turkish bath, and that was certainly worth the thirty euros. Tell us about that. Uh, Suleiman Hammam in Istanbul. You actually went into a, a local bath? Yes, they sent a van for us and drove us through these busy, noisy streets, and we ended up uh, walking into um, this ancient building. It uh, began in 1490. The architect, anyway, built it uh, in the 1500s. But, it, you know, it was quite welcoming and warm and quite a contrast to the busyness of the outside. And we proceeded in to have the most wonderful, relaxing hour, (laughs) you know, just four women alone. It was was supposed to be co-ed, but at the time we were there, uh, Hmm. it was just for... So you had a good experience in your bath. That's great. Oh, (laughs) yes, yes. I did, too. That Turkish bath is really a a must when you're in in Turkey anywhere, I'd say. Miriam, thanks for your call. I agree. You're welcome. Happy travels. Bye. Bye now. Coming up, more with Melly and your calls at 877-333-RICK. We're talking turkey on Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Melika Sival, who is a tour organizer in Turkey uh, and a tour guide and an author. She's written guidebooks about Ephesus, my favorite uh, ancient ruin, really, in, in Turkey. And Melly's website is melitour.com, M-E-L-I-T-O-U-R.com. Meli, I know Ataturk was like the George Washington of Turkey, uh, single-handedly took Turkey out of the Middle Ages and helped forge the modern Turkish nation back in the 1920s. Mustafa Kemal Ataturk. Yes, Yes. and he's the father of Turkey. Give us just a quick background on what he accomplished. Ataturk had put an end to the Ottoman rule, which has been ruling our land for 700 years. Ataturk trusted in the Turks that we can, with no weapons, get rid of all the European allies who were trying to invade Turkey in the 20s. And the most important thing was he established a secular republic, and in 10 years he had created the reforms which made Turkey into a modern country. So coming into World War I, it's fair to say Turkey was a medieval sort of a country with Ottoman old-school empire. And then you have this real modern, democratic, secular leader, a strong-arm man, who came in and, and literally is the father of modern Turkey, 
that dates back only to the 1920s, so still in the living memory of a lot of Turkish people. And he was so committed to a secular nation that he actually, I understand, prohibited anybody from going to churches or mosques or synagogues for a few years until they were educated, or what's the deal there? Until they were educated, so they will not be brainwashed by fundamentalism in the name of religion. So he so, was not against religion. He was not against religion, but he was against using religion for fundamentalist reasons and for politics. So he wanted us to get educated. Now, I was walking through a village in eastern Turkey with Meli, and there was a stadium filled with high school students, and I vividly remember them thrusting their fists up in the air, screaming, we are a secular nation. 400 of these kids, all at the same time, screaming, we are a secular nation in their sports stadium. And I asked Meli, what's going on here? Can you explain what that would have, what was going on? Well, secularity is very important for us because geographically, Turkey is surrounded with countries where secularity has not been their achievement. And the end result, using 1,400-year-old rules of this religion, of course, cannot be applied to modern day. And we have uh, serious problems on women rights, on human rights, on international re relations. So we were able to avoid all those medieval mentality by establishing secularity, dividing state from religion. So in Turkey, the separation of mosque and state is just as precious as the separation of church and state is in the United States. Absolutely. Wow. But there is one other thing that Ataturk had accomplished. He gave us sense of nationalism rather than ethnic identity, rather than sectoral identity, rather than gender identity. We are a Turk in Turkey. And that's going back to French Revolution. If French Revolution introduced as an enlightenment nationality, that's what we have acquired. So we don't want to see the world being divided into small ethnic or religious groups. That is very dangerous. That's going back before French Revolution. And we have 100% confidence in our military that they are backing up our democracy. So you really so, are happy if your government takes over, or if your military takes over, if things are going into a no, theocracy way? I, I would be happy that we would not allow theocracy to take over, but I hope it will never be necessary because every time military takes over, there is democratic problems, of course, but if I need to choose, and I hope this will not be misunderstood, if I need to choose a military coup over theocracy, reluctantly, I will choose military coup. Is that unusual in Turkey, or would you say most Tur no, Turkish people would No, I think Turkish people would go for that. Interesting. Now, I remember you told me once when you were a young, a young girl, you worried you'd never fall in love with a man because you loved Ataturk so much. Yes, I think I've passed that, but I still love Ataturk in a wonderful way. There's an incredible love for Ataturk in Turkey that a lot of Americans don't realize. Lots of love and respect. And a great way to get an appreciation of Ataturk is go to Ankara and to his mausoleum yes. and the Associated Museum. People still see Ataturk in the clouds? We do. We do, absolutely. Every year in the eastern part of Turkey, there is a mountain which at a certain time of the day cast shadow of the portrait of Ataturk, and we get millions of people to see the shadow of that mountain. The father and of modern the Turkey. The father of modern Turkey. Who really muscled Turkey out of the Middle Ages and into the modern world in the 1920s. Yes, we're very proud of him, and we're very proud of ourselves because he had confidence in us, and we proved that he was right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Melika Suval, who comes all the way from Izmir in Turkey to join us. Meli, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me here. How is the legacy of Ataturk holding up today? Are the young people still as respectful of Ataturk and appreciative as, as you were when you were young? Yes. Every day we realize how difficult what he did was. So we have a growing respect in Ataturk. And without his teachings, the days that we're going through, the threat of fundamentalism, the threat of imperialism, the threat of globalization, we could not have stood 
against those. So I think the ideas of Ataturk is supporting Turkish people to be who they are. Wow, so you named three very big issues, imperialism, fundamentalism, and globalization. Do you see these as the big challenges to contemporary I Turkey? I see these big challenges to all of the countries who are trying to be themselves. Okay, and in regard to Ataturk's teaching as the founder of your modern nation, what do you mean by the threat of imperialism? Threat of imperialism looks down upon the cultures, and if you do not have a nationalism, not fascism, but nationalism, a pride in your nation, then you can easily be swollen by the bigger countries. And does Turkey have a, a, a pride in its nation that can withstand this? We have this? a big pride in ourselves, yes. And fundamentalism, that challenge. Talk to me about that lately. Fundamentalism is a growing threat because it's being backed up with tremendous economic uh, support coming from all parts of the world. Fundamentalists are being supported from Europe. Fundamentalists are being supported from the United States as well as the Arabic countries. So, Melika, the country is 99% Muslim, but I know that Turkey is committed because of Ataturk to a, a modern uh, secular government. What if, because of democracy... Turkey voted to become a theocracy and a fundamentalist Muslim country. What would happen? In our constitution, we have a non-amendable clause which says the Turkish Republic is a secular state. So based on that clause, military and all those of us who support military in that case will step in and there will be a coup and we'll get rid of them. So you have uh, a legal separation of mosque and state, just like we have a separation of church and state. Yes. Because of your constitution. Yes. So Ataturk foresaw Since this. Since 1924, Turkey wow. had become a secular state. Has the military ever uh, had to step in and, and change the government? Not for sec threat of secularity, but they have, when we had the threat of terrorism, they did. What's the standing of the military now? Do people see it as a defender of the constitution or a menace to democracy? No, defender of the Constitution. How we big, trust big, our government. You trust your military? Military. How big is your military? One million men. Wow. What's the state of women in the military? They can be officers. They are not drafted, but they can go up to be a general. In fact, the daughter of Ataturk, adopted daughter of Ataturk, was a military air pilot. So that's interesting. You have a million men in the army. Uh, out of practical purposes, you've got to draft people to have that many. And women are welcome to go to school and be officers, and yes. they, they do function as officers. So there's a, a minority in Turkey that are fundamentalists that would want to turn Turkey into a nation sort of like Iran is today, and they would be not economically viable, you're saying, without the money coming in from abroad. That's exactly what I'm saying. And it's coming saying. from wealthy fundamentalist uh, Muslims in Europe, Not necessarily Muslims from Europe, but for political reasons from non-Muslims in Europe. What would be their interest? Why would they give money to this if they weren't uh, motivated because by the Muslim Because if Turkey faith? goes fundamentalist, then the stability of Turkey will fall, and then Turkey can fall into their hands. A strong Turkey in Middle East is not an interest of many of other countries. Do you think there are some nations that find it in their interest to have a fragmented, chaotic Turkey so they can have their way in the Middle East? That's what I think. Tell me then, I'm very curious about this because people just assume there will be a war if Iraq falls apart and Kurdistan becomes an independent nation. Kurdistan, the Kurdish people being the northern third of the three warring factions in Iraq. Why is that so important to Turkey? It is very important to not only to Turkey, but to all of Middle East, thus for the whole world, because the long policy of the British divide and rule had never proved to be right, efficient, or good for the people who have been divided. So we don't believe that if Iraq is divided, one part of it becoming Kurdistan, that divided Iraq is not going to be good for Middle East, therefore it will not be good for Turkey. If Iraq falls apart and there is a nation of Kurdish people looking to be part of a nation, what's the alternative? The alternative is unitarian nation of Iraq. It has to stay unitarian. So in Turkey's interest, Turkey's interest for Iraq is unitarian to stay nation of Iraq. Because if How Kurdistan is become a state, it will be landlocked. 
how will they survive? They will have to survive with some support of another nation. They will just become a puppet of another nation, and we don't need a puppet next to our door. I see. So you would think a, uh, a landlocked Kurdistan would be a base for another nation that would challenge Turkey's sovereignty. That's uh, correct. How many Kurdish Turks are there? Probably around 20 million. And that's, what, a third of your nation? third of our nation in Turkey, but maybe 5,000 of them are following the divisive or dividing idea. This is a, a very complicated issue that it must be frustrating for you to um, see people that don't understand the complexity of the issue try to push to a, a goal that they might have. I don't like my country to be looked upon as different ethnic groups. I want people to think of Turkey as a melting pot toast salad because with whatever our ethnic identity is, whatever our religious identity is, we are the citizens of Turkish Republic. And most of us are proud of being the citizens of Turkish Republic. A handful of terrorists wants to separate the Kurdish part of Turkey, but they will never succeed. What's good for Turkey, in, in your estimate, is the modern viewpoint that Turkish people are politically Turkish while they can be ethnically any different sort of mix. And uh, just like in our country, we have a lot of Italian-Americans and a lot of uh, Greek-Americans and a lot of Spanish-Americans. As preached in French Revolution, nationalism, nation, being a nation is important, no matter what the factors of nation might be, ethnically or religious-wise. And your hope is that regardless of their ethnicity... The modern Turk will think of himself as a Turkish citizen. Yes. That's something to hope for in the interest of peace, I would think. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Melika Saval from Izmir, Turkey. Melika, thanks for traveling all the way to our studios and share your insight into your great country. It's my pleasure, Rick. And David's on the line in Washington. Hi, David. Hi, Rick. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I just want to share an experience we had back in 2004 when me and my wife went to uh, Turkey together. And uh, just want to say that 2004 was just an awesome trip to Turkey, one of the best trips we've ever had in traveling around the world. And one of the experiences of modern Turkey was, um, well, I had forgotten to bring enough underwear. So we were in the Grand Bazaar, or very near it, kind of between the Grand Bazaar and the uh, Rasim Pasham Mosque, and we found a shop. And I went in, and I coaxed my wife to say, okay, come on, join me. So we both went in, you know, just kind of, you know, how we do it in the United States. So we're shopping together. And we're in the store for about two minutes, and we notice it's like dead quiet. And it's like, well, why? These guys were all talking. And it's like, you know, all men in the, in the store. And I turn around, and they're all whispering and looking at us. And it's like, okay, so is this something where a man and a, a husband and a wife shouldn't be, like, shopping together? We thought we were in Istanbul. Istanbul is pretty cosmopolitan, a little more open, a little more easygoing. And we were wondering, man, did we make a cultural faux pas here? Is that acceptable in Turkey? Because we didn't run into that in other things. So You're asking if a, a husband and wife can will shop go shopping Sh together? Well, shop together for, like, you know, undergarments. Oh, to undergarments, I see. Yeah, so we are just curious. Well, I would never think that a husband and wife should not go together to an undergarment shop. I don't know what the situation was. I wouldn't be able to comment on that. But it is okay. If you go back to Turkey and try it again, you can try it with your wife. It is really okay. Well, did you get some good underpants there, David? Actually, it was kind of fun when I realized that they were getting really quiet. So, you know, we started looking at boxers, and we were at the front of the store in the big window. So then we started, you know... Like, you know, I take one out and try it on and start to say extra large and stuff. And <laughs> then there were all these people out in front of the window, you know, all the little teenage boys and stuff going around, started uh, pointing at us. Well, you're probably a big guy, and they all wondered briefs or boxers. That's right. <laughs> well, there you go, another cultural adventure. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, people experience is, is what makes it. Yeah. Melly, do Turkish men wear briefs or boxers? Boxers. Boxers. All right. Okay, David, carry on. Then I just had one other question. When we were traveling uh, with our bus tour... We would pass a lot of people out in the country who were, like, staying in uh, the traditional goat, you know, the black goat hair tents and yurts. Yeah. So we were thinking if we were to go back to Turkey again, it would be great to have an experience where you can stay in a yurt 
or stay with a family in a goat hair tent. But, you know, doing my Internet searches, I couldn't find anything. You know, if, if I was to just hop on a bus and get off and find one of these families, would that be ex- would that be okay? And if you really want to do it, I think you should just stop the bus, hop out, and go to the tents and tell them you are God's guest, and they will let you stay with them. You don't have to search on the Internet. You don't have to make reservations. It's okay. Just go and knock on their door. And it's safe. It will be safe. Oh, it'll be very safe, yeah. Okay. And you drink a lot of tea, and you hear a lot of people playing the eagle bone flute. But okay. remember, if it's their wedding, then they will shoot guns in the sky. Don't get scared of that. So if I was to go as a guest, would I have to bring, like, a gift? Or what would be an appropriate gift to bring as a guest? School supplies are the best gifts to take to families. That's a good idea. Okay. School supplies. And remember, David, if you find it on the web, it's going to be a business. And it'll sure. be sort of faux traditional, maybe. I mean, it's not bad, but it, they're set up for tourists. But if you really want to do that backdoor thing, it's, it's, it's a little tough these days. But if, if you were determined, you could do that. And then, as Melly said, you would just, you'd probably have it written down on a piece of paper from some Turk that you are God's guest. How do you say that in Turkish? Tandır misafiri. All right. And, and then they would invite you in. Good luck, David, on your travels. Great. Thanks. Thanks for your call. Great. Bye. Melika Sevalm coming to us from Izmir in Turkey. If you want to uh, connect with Meli, her website is melitour.com, M-E-L-I-T-O-U-R.com. Meli does wonderful tours. She guides them herself of all different corners of Turkey and with all different themes and focuses. Uh, Meli Sevalm, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rick. <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback, archived audio on demand, and podcast extras. You'll find it in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.